Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. So I'm going to make you think right, right out of the gate today. How many of you have ever had a situation in your life where you read something, you have read instructions, you have read the directions, and you didn't follow them, and it hasn't made a difference in the decisions you made? I'm going to give you all just a couple seconds to name it, get it in your mind. Guys, if you need any help, this either took place in a car with directions or putting together IKEA furniture. One of those, one of those two. So 10 seconds, name it. What is it? You've read it been in front of you, didn't change anything. Probably didn't even take 10 seconds. I remember um, in high school, I don't even remember what grade I was in. I had this lingering cough. I mean, it was terrible, just this bronchitis sort of cough. And our family had a friend who was a drug rep, and he repped Robitussin. And so he gave us a case of Robitussin sample bottles. And I remember reading on that bottle that it said, this bottle contains four doses of Robitussin. And I thought, well, I have such a bad cough that I'm just going to drink the bottle and that'll help my cough. It did help my cough because in fourth hour Spanish, my mom got called to come get me because I was asleep and couldn't be woken. I read it. It was in front of me. One dose. And it didn't impact the way I lived. Didn't make a difference. And that's a funny story. We probably all have funny stories across this room. But where it gets unfunny is that I do this all the time with God's word. All the time. I read it. And it's just information. It's like a newspaper. And so if you're following in your notes... What we need to start out with this morning is that God's word is sufficient, but it's more than just information. His word is sufficient, but it's more than information. Listen, I I want, you you gotta know this. I believe God's word is totally and completely sufficient for growing our faith. I believe that. But if scripture is only viewed as a source of information, then it is insufficient because it needs a response. It demands a response. And now that we're back in the Gospel of Luke, if you remember, we spent the first six months of the year in the Gospel of Luke, and what we've been learning, if you're following in your notes, is that we are spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Spending time with him to learn from him how to be like him. And what we've seen all along is that following Jesus is way more than just acquiring information. It's a way of life that demands a response. And the Bible is just such an amazing book because Jesus actually has a conversation in our story today with a person who knew the Bible. He was an expert in the Bible, but for him it was just information. It it never changed his life. And we get an inside glimpse of what Jesus says about that today. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open it to Luke chapter 10. It's in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to grab one from the seat rack in front of you. 
and follow along. It would, it would be really great to have you follow along today as we read this story together. If you're using one of those black Bibles, this story can be pa- found on page 725. 725. We're going to look at one of the most well-known stories that Jesus ever told. So our story begins in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. I'll start us off by reading uh, from the Bible. You can follow along. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We'll take a quick break. The expert would have known the answer to this question. He's asking a question that he already knows the answer to, and he would have known this answer since he was a little Jewish boy. Every Jewish person knew the formula to inherit eternal life. It was by good works, and it was found in Deuteronomy 6.5, which says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, and all your mind. They would recite it every morning and every night. He knew the answer. And he asked Jesus, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, he, he probably also would have heard Jesus say this in other teachings. We find in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus was asked this question. You can see it on the screen. It says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So this guy knew it from the time he was a little kid. He might have heard Jesus teach it before. And he still asked the question, and what Jesus did is he combined Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, love God, love others. He's basically saying you cannot separate these two things. They, they go together. And so the story begins with the lawyer asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Expert in the law can also be translated lawyer. And I need to take just a brief moment to tell us in our Western post-resurrection context that there is nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. Eternal life is inherited due to the death of another person. No amount of doing will make you into an heir. And what we believe is that if we trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, his death and his resurrection, then your sins are forgiven and you are an heir with Christ and you have inherited eternal life based on what he accomplished, not on what you've done. But remember, the story is being told in a Jewish context where eternal life is earned. So with that in mind, the lawyer asked what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And in verse 26, Jesus replies, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In verse 27, we're told how the lawyer responded with very familiar words. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looks at him in verse 28 and he says, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. You go about loving God and loving other people perfectly all the time and then absolutely, yes, you can inherit eternal life on your own. The only problem is, is that I can't love God or other people for an hour without sinning. I need a savior. We all need a savior. It's an impossible command. And I think the lawyer still doesn't get it. And he thinks he really can inherit eternal life. And so in verse 29, the lawyer comes back at Jesus with another question. 
Would you read this with me in the first grade box on your notes? It says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This expert in the law is wanting to determine who classifies as a neighbor so he can make sure he's doing enough to inherit eternal life. The the man's asking the question because he wants to know who he needs to love. This guy's basically saying, Jesus, you don't mean I have to love everybody, do you? I mean, who's my neighbor? Jesus, tell me the minimum standards required of who I need to love. Who's worth it? Who's worth it? And in reply, like Jesus often does, he doesn't answer the question. He says, let me tell you a story. And we pick up in verse 30 with Jesus beginning the story of the Good Samaritan. If you're following in your Bibles, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, I want to set the the scene for this story so we can gather an imagination for it. The character in the story, the first character is a man. It's anyone, any person. In Jesus' day, there were two primary ways to tell someone's ethnicity, race, or religion. It was the clothes they were wearing, and it was the accent that they spoke with. So I'm sure everyone listening, Jesus had a crowd around him. He was addressing the expert in the law, but I'm sure there was a crowd listening. And I I bet they were wondering, Jesus, who is this guy? Who is it? Who's on the ground? And with two pieces of information in one sentence, Jesus dispels any way of identification. He says they stripped him of his clothes and they left him half dead so they couldn't tell what he was wearing. And he was unconscious, he was unable to speak, so they weren't able to tell what people group he belonged to. Jesus is a genius. He's a genius. In this teaching, he immediately cut through racial prejudices. And instead of being about a people group, he said, and I just wrote this out for you in your notes because it is so important. The victim is a human being created in the image of God. The victim is a human being created in the image of God. No nationalities, no political party, no ethnicity. It's anyone. Jesus will not give parameters or define who our neighbors are. He won't do it. I will say this. The only reason he picked a man is because a woman would never travel this road on her own. So he chose a man. It's anyone created in the image of God. And so this man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And in this crowd listening to Jesus, they would have known what road he was talking about. From Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles long, a decline of 4,000 feet. It was filled with crevices and rocks, and it was a dangerous road. We have a picture of it on the screen for you. Probably wasn't even a road that we would consider a road. It's a path. It's also known as the Pass of Blood or the Red Road because so many people got jumped and beaten up and killed here. So there he is, no clothes, no possessions, wounded, beaten, hanging on to his last breath, in great need. And then in the next verse, in verse 31, would you read this with me on the screen? This is Luke 10, verse 31. It says, A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
The text is written in such a way that that it could actually begin, it just so happened that a priest was going down the same road. Now, priests were men who oversaw the holy activities in the temple of God in Jerusalem. And every year for two weeks, priests would leave their hometown, go to the temple, do their duty, and this guy was probably on his way back home from serving two weeks. So the priest had a decision to make, right? The person who is a religious leader for the entire nation of Israel and who is fluent in what the Bible says has a question he needs to answer. Is this person created in the image of God worth my time? Is this person worth the cost? Is this person worth the shame or mocking I might endure for helping? Is he worth it? And his answer was no. He wasn't worth it. And when the priest saw the man, he literally, the word used, he walked the opposite way. And on a road that we just saw, the path that we just saw, he might have had to step over him. He saw him. Verse 32 goes on and says this, so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A Levite is a priest's assistant. He knows what the priest knows. He knows what the Bible commands. He recites Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 in the morning and in the evening. He knows what the Bible says. He saw the man and passed by on the other side of the road. Same word went the opposite way. If you're following in your notes, the priest and Levite saw the man and did nothing. They saw the man and did nothing. And here comes the part where Jesus starts getting in people's business. This is what parables do. They turn everything on its head. So would you read this with me on the screen? This is Luke chapter 10, verse 33. Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. The word for pity could also be compassion. You may want to write that into your notes. And if you were a first century Jewish person, your blood would begin boil. What you need to know is that the Samaritans and Jews hated each other. In Luke chapter 9, James and John actually asked Jesus if they could call down fire to kill them. To which Jesus said, you know, like, hold your horses, guys. That's, we, we don't do that. That's not the way of Jesus. The hatred between them went back 400 years. In Babylonian captivity, the Samaritans had lost their impurity by intermarrying with invaders while the Jews kept their purity by marrying other Jews. It was common for Jews to get up in the morning and pray something like this. Lord, give me a good day. Give me this day my daily bread. Keep me safe today. And they would finish their prayers with and do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Their nicknames included half-breeds and mutts. They did not view them as people created in the image of God. And into this Jewish group of people that hated Samaritans, Jesus said, if you're following in your notes, the Samaritans saw the man and had compassion on him. He had compassion on him. This is such a great word in Greek. It it means to be moved to the foundation of your being with pity. 
It's what you see bothers you. It's this holy discontent that I can't stand what I'm seeing. It's the word most often used to describe the emotional state of Jesus in the New Testament. He was filled with compassion. What he saw bothered him. So this hated Samaritan, we're told in verse 34, if you're following in your Bibles, the Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus gets done telling the story and then he asks the lawyer a final question. If you're following on your notes, would you read this with me in the second gray box? These are the words of Jesus. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Catch this. Catch this, right? If you're following in your notes, Jesus changed the question completely. He changed the question completely. This expert in the law is trying to determine who would be classified as a neighbor so he could know who he needed to love. If you're following in your notes, the lawyer asked the wrong question. The wrong question is, who is my neighbor? It's the wrong question. Jesus turns the question on its head and he says it's not about determining who your neighbor is, it's about defining what it means to be a neighbor. So Jesus gives the right question if you're following in your notes, who can I be a neighbor to? Who can I be a neighbor to? I mean, did you notice that Jesus changes our questions? He messes with our questions. My questions sound like, um... God, how many houses down the street do you want me to go? Do I need to help my neighbor? What about the guy at the corner of I-55 and Toronto Road? Do I really need to love him? They're not like me. I'm a little afraid of this. And he changes our questions and opens our hearts to say, who needs my help? God, who do you want me to see today? Who are you putting in my path? Who can I show your love to? He just, he changes our questions when our heart postures change. So Jesus asked the question, who was the neighbor? And in verse 37, if you're following in your Bibles, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Did you notice that the teacher of the law couldn't even bring himself to say the word, the one who had mercy? He couldn't even say Samaritan. He hated him so much. Instead, he said the one who had mercy on him. And I so want us to see this, friends. The priest knew the Bible. The Levite knew the Bible. The expert that asked Jesus the question knew the Bible. They knew the two greatest commands were to love God and to love others. But the only one who allowed the Bible to go beyond information to transformation was the Samaritan. If you're following in your notes, the Samaritan allowed the Bible to go beyond information to transformation. It changed his life. It opened his heart. And and as I thought about this, man, most of us know the Bible. Most of us know the two greatest commands. 
And it's just so often that I, I don't let it change me. I just read it for information. But Jesus says, go and do that. Go and be the one who shows mercy. Go be that type of neighbor. That's who I want you to be. Go and do. But I love the fact that Jesus dealt with the heart before he ever told him to go do something about it. And that's because becoming always precedes doing. It's why our renewed vision is about who we're becoming. Hungry, humble, hospitable people that live it out in the way of Jesus. It's a heart issue. And we want to be people who are growing in hospitality in our hearts. And so for the remainder of our time together, I want to pull a few things out of this story that can help us learn what it means to be the neighbor. What does it mean? What are some definitions of neighboring or characteristics of neighboring that we find in this story? If you're following along in your notes, the first one, a neighbor shows mercy. A neighbor shows mercy. We just, just read that. The neighbor is the one who saw the person in need and he showed mercy. Jeff gave this definition last week. He said mercy is caring and thoughtful and kind and compassionate. And there's this great quote. I I put it on your notes. It's mercy is compassion moved to action. Mercy is not just thinking something or feeling something like, oh, I really should do this or I feel bad for them or, oh, I wish that wasn't the case. Mercy is actually doing something. From the inside out, it's changed your heart and you want to share it. It's the compassion of Jesus that leads to action. A neighbor shows mercy. If you're following in your notes, another characteristic of neighboring. Neighbors have their eyes open. Neighbors have their eyes open. God puts neighbors in our path if we're looking. The word saw appears in verses 31, 32, and 33, and we've said this already, but the priest and the Levite saw the man just like the Samaritan, but they didn't think twice about him. And I I just think, how many times in my ordinary, everyday life do I see people, but I don't really see them? God puts people in our path all the time. It's frequently not the extravagant thing that we have to do. It's in the ordinary, mundane part of our lives that God reveals to us people on our path. That's how it happened for the Samaritan. He was probably on his way home too. But he saw him. Neighbors have their eyes open. A third characteristic of neighboring, many times we don't get to choose our neighbors. Sometimes we do. We can make a decision to go serve here or serve there. But a lot of times we don't get to decide. It's who God puts on our path. And this is what I struggled with all week because I wanted to be able to stand here and tell you this is who your neighbor should be. This is who you should go serve. This is who you should help out. But if Jesus was unwilling to define who we should be a neighbor to, then I can't do that either. Many times we don't get to choose but maybe it would be good to wake up every morning and say, God, open my eyes today. Help me see people on my path. Just show me, God. Open my eyes. We don't always get to choose. Another characteristic of neighboring, if you're following in your notes, being a neighbor is not always convenient. It's not always convenient. 
The priest and the Levite were too busy. Maybe they wanted to get home. Maybe it would have made them unclean after serving in the temple. Whatever reason they didn't stop, stopping would have been an inconvenience. And I find myself doing this too. Sadly, I sometimes see people as distractions and disturbances rather than divine appointments. I just want to say that again. I see people as distractions and disturbances and not divine appointments, but that might be exactly who God wants me to see. It's not always going to fit into my nice, neat schedule. Another characteristic of neighboring, being a neighbor has a cost involved. There's always a cost. There was a cost involved for the Samaritan. He gave up some of his material possessions, his oil and his wine. He let the guy ride on his donkey while he walked. He paid for the the inn for the guy to stay in. But perhaps even greater than that was the cost of his time that it took, that he had to go out of his way. And in our society, time is one of our most precious commodities. And there will be a cost involved. There will be a cost Jeff mentioned this last week, and we always want to mention this. Hospitality has healthy boundaries. Being a neighbor is about seeing people God brings across our path, and if there's a need we can meet, we meet it. This is important. It's our responsibility to provide relief, not create dependency. We provide a relief. We don't create dependency. But here's what I do when I hear boundaries. I'm like, thank you for telling me about those boundaries. That is really good to remember. And what I'm really good at, and I don't know if anybody else here can relate to this, I turn boundaries into walls that stop me from helping anybody. I use them as an excuse. So I'm all for healthy boundaries, but don't make it a wall that will stop you from seeing who God wants you to see. The final characteristic of neighboring, most important, it is the most important. If you're following in your notes, our motivation for being a neighbor is Jesus. It's Jesus. We are motivated by the love of Christ. The one telling the story of the good Samaritan is the great Samaritan. You and I were once dead in our sin, lying in the road of our disobedience. Friends, this story, we're the guy in the road. And Jesus comes, and we're deserving of nothing. We deserve eternal separation because that's what our sin does to us. And God sent his son to be a servant and heal our wounds and to raise us up and to cleanse us and make us whole, and he paid the costly price of all of that with his son. That is the mercy that God showed us. And so we are motivated to care for the poor, those in need, the widow, the orphan, the refugee. We are motivated by the gospel because we have a God who sent his son to become poor so that we could become rich. That's our motivation. It has to be to pass on what Jesus did for us because if we operate out of obligation, and and tons of us have done this, You are going to burn out, never thinking that you're doing enough, and it's going to bring on feelings of guilt and shame and condemnation. And if you are sitting here this morning and you are feeling any of those things, those are the lies of the enemy, the lies of the evil one whispering to you, trying to make you less than you are. Please do not feel guilty. It won't take you where Jesus wants you to go. 
Jesus is not trying to make this expert in the law feel guilty. He's not trying to say, look how bad you are that you don't help people. What Jesus is saying is when you understand how I was a neighbor to you, you'll be a neighbor to others. That's what he's saying. This is why this is not a story about helping other people. There's something deeper going on. There's something more profound at work. The beginning question, if you notice, go back to verse 25. The beginning question is not who is my neighbor. The beginning question is what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is not a story about helping other people. It's a story about needing a new heart. And when we have a new heart, it will flow out of us. The love of Christ will flow out. It's not simply about doing. It's about doing, flowing out of becoming. What kind of hearts do we have? Are we hungry for God? Are we humble, recognizing we were the one in the road? Are we hospitable and practicing loving strangers? Interestingly enough, um, this is for free. Um, Definition of hospitality in the New Testament is loving strangers. It's loving strangers. It's a becoming that leads to a doing. And so I, I ask you the final line on your notes this morning. I want you to keep your notes out for me. We have just a few minutes left, and I'm going to ask you to keep them out. But I I want this to be a personal question. I want this to be an honest question. If you're following in your notes, what, what I want us to ask ourselves is, is there a neighbor that God has been putting in my path that I have been walking past? Is there a neighbor that God has been putting in my path that I have been walking past? And I don't know who that is for you. I don't know if it's your next door neighbor, a family at your child's school, a prison ministry. I don't know if it's fostering or adopting a child. I don't know if it's where you play basketball. I don't know if it's at a park in Springfield where homeless people gather. I don't know what it is. Let me ask it a different way. What has God put on your heart or put in your path repeatedly and you've been avoiding it? What's he put on your path repeatedly and it's been on your heart, right? Like you've had a prompting to do something and you haven't done it. You haven't done anything. What is it? Is there anything? Maybe because of the cost or the convenience or it's scary, we just don't do anything. And I I talked to my wife, Sarah, uh, about this. We actually talked about it this morning. She struggles with becoming paralyzed to do anything because the world, needs of the world are so great. Like, I don't even know what to do. Where do I start? And to that, I just encourage you this morning, do for one person what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one person. Because while you may not change the world by helping that one person, you'll change their world. And the ripple effect it could have we, we may never know. There's this quote by Mother Teresa. I love this quote. She said, I, cannot, I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the waters to create many ripples. Do for one what you wish you could do for millions. A number of you are already doing this. You're neighboring And I just say to you, way to go. 
We have an amazing church and people are serving in ways that I don't know about and I will never know about. Keep neighboring. Keep neighboring, but walk with your eyes open. Pay attention to what God is doing and who is on your path. Don't just check something off and say, well, I've done this before. I don't have to pay attention anymore. We want to walk with eyes open, asking God, who is it that you want me to see? And earlier I said I wanted to talk about um, how this plays out personally, which is what we've just talked about, but also how this plays out corporately because as a church, there are people and organizations that God puts on our path. And two of those that I wanted to let you know about, it's in your bulletin column today. You've already heard about one of them. It's Contact Ministries. The other is our school partner, Enos Elementary School. These may be the two greatest opportunities for volunteerism and serving that we can offer you. And this may not be the path that God is showing you, but it's a path that our church is on. And if you want to walk down it, there are some opportunities there for you to walk down that path. Just ask God where he wants you, what he wants you to do. And as we close, I want to share with you something that God is putting on my path. But he's also putting it on our church's path because we're beginning to ask God, what do you want us to do about this? And so this is a family moment for our church. So if you're a regular attender or you're a member, I want to invite you to lean in. And if you're a guest with us this morning, then I hope you can listen to this and hear what we're wrestling with ourselves. I need to tell on myself first before addressing something. For far too long, I have been unaware, uninformed, and silent about the greatest refugee crisis in the history of the world. I don't know how this happens, but I have become desensitized to seeing three-year-old Alan Curdy's body washing up on a Turkish beach as his family tried to flee persecution. I don't stop long enough to realize that the kid named Omran Dachnish sitting in the back of an ambulance being pulled from the rubble in Aleppo, Syria is the age of my son, Caleb. And his family's just been killed. But because of instant access to media today, this is an issue that is in front of us. It's on our path and we see it. And the decision is whether we will step over it or we will address it. Friends, this is not a Republican issue. It is not a Democrat issue. It is a nonpartisan kingdom issue. And historically, the church has had a long-term commitment to refugee ministry, caring deeply for the most vulnerable of the world until this election cycle. And it's changed it all. It has made us fearful. It has made us scared. And it has become controversial. And this fear has caused this to be a partisan issue. But we see in Jesus that in love, there is no fear. Today, 60 million people worldwide have been forcibly displaced from their homes, 20 million having to flee their own country. More than half of those are children. The church needs to lead on this. But a recent poll says that 15% of self-identified evangelicals agree with refugee resettlement in the United States. God, forgive us for stepping over the most vulnerable. God, forgive me for sticking my head in the sand and not asking you what you'd want me to do. For goodness sakes, one of my sons is an immigrant. I don't know what to do about this. 
I don't know what God wants me to do about this. I'm asking God, what, what small part can I play in a global disaster? I've included some steps on the back of your notes that I'm taking right now. It becomes, it starts with becoming informed. Go online to read about the crisis. I've listed several websites. I read a book titled Seeking Refuge. It's amazing. We've included the first chapter for free on our website. We have copyright permission to do that. Become informed so you're not scared. Instead of living in fear, we need to be informed. As a matter of fact, I'll just say one thing. Most of the refugees resettled in America since 9-11 are non-radical Islamists. They're not Muslims at all. They're Christians from Burma fleeing persecution because they follow Jesus. They're from the Congo. They're from Sudan. They're from Somalia. They're from the Bhutan. They're from China. They're from Russia. Yes, the next wave is Syrian refugees. And I'm all for the vetting process, and I want to make it as safe as possible, but we cannot step over these people any longer. They are fleeing persecution. They are in the road. They are bleeding to death, and we have a decision to make. Are we going to help them, or are we going to step over them? And after we've become informed, because I do think fear will, fear will leave, then the question becomes pray. Ask God what he would want you to do. If anything, this crisis may not be something he wants you to get involved with. There may be something else for you. But maybe it is something he wants you to get involved with, and we will never know unless we ask him. Just ask him. That's what our church is doing. God, what, what do we do with this? What do we do? The Bible has a lot to say about refugees, and they tie into the story of the Good Samaritan. The Hebrew word ger, G-E-R, is translated as foreigner, resident alien, stranger, sojourner, immigrant, and it appears 92 times in the Old Testament. And in 36 of those times, this is so important, friends, in 36 of those times, it talks about Israel's obligation to these people. Most important here, Israel's obligation this is beautiful what God does. Their obligation is to be motivi- motivated by the memory that they had been aliens themselves. So you might be wondering, how do I cultivate this type of heart posture? Like what, God, I'm just, I'm confused right now. We cultivate this and we become people like this by remembering that we were once aliens and foreigners. We were the ones in the road. And because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we are now adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God, and our motivation to love the stranger is Jesus. So here it is. It comes down to this, right? This is it. We know what this word says. Right? We know it. We know the two greatest commandments are loving God and loving others. And so the question for us today is, will we read this book for information or will we allow it to transform our lives? Will we allow it to shape us to become more like Jesus? People who are hungry, humble, and hospitable. Or are we just gonna read it like a newspaper and say, man, that made me feel good and I I really like that psalm and I like that, but I'm, I'm not gonna let it affect me. Or will we allow it to change our lives? And so as we close, 
I just want to give you a few minutes to ask God a very honest question. It's the question we already talked about. It's on the last line of your notes. Is there a person? Is there a neighbor? Is there a people group that God has been putting in my path that I've been walking past? We, we operate under this assumption around here, friends. God is always at work. And if we are following Jesus and there's no one on our path, it's most likely because we're too busy to stop and pay attention or we don't want to see it. And that's a hard issue. That, that's a hard issue. And so maybe your question is, who's the person or people group? Maybe your, your cry today is, God, would you give me a heart that would love people? Just name it. He'll meet you where you are. But we just want to give you the gift of a couple minutes of silence. We don't do this enough in our lives. Who is it? Who is it? <laughs>